Hey everyone, Keith here. I wanted to give you a quick heads up on an episode of Black History Month this year. It's a conversation I had with Brittany Matthews, a partner here in our Chicago office. I've had the pleasure of watching Brittany's journey with Bain unfold for over a decade, and I was really excited to sit down and record this one. In addition to the great work she's doing with our clients, Brittany is also a founder and leader of our Black Leaders Forum, which she'll talk about in that episode. I'm really excited about it because it brings Black executives from all industries and all types of functional areas together to learn from each other and to grow as a group and support each other in their career journeys. In addition to the episode with Brittany, I encourage you to go back and listen to the Black History Month episodes from last year. It was three great conversations that'll give you a context and insight into the work that our Blacks at Bain group is doing inside Bain with our clients and in our communities. I hope you enjoy the episodes and look forward to many more in the future. As always, please leave us a rating if you like what you're hearing and provide us feedback on how we can improve and let us know what topics you'd like us to touch on in future episodes. We'll be starting up a new season this summer, and I can't wait to share more stories of extraordinary people at Bain. Thanks, and have a great day. Joining me today on the podcast is Brittany Matthews, a longtime friend and partner here in our Chicago office. She's someone who built her own Bain by taking advantage of a lot of different opportunities throughout her journey. And we'll talk about that journey and some of the great work she's doing with our Black Leaders Forum. Brittany, welcome. Keith, great to see you. And uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. Great. Well, Brittany, as we always do, I like to give people a sense of who they're listening to. Uh, And I want to start with your background a little bit. We're both MIT alums, but let's talk about how you got to MIT. Where did you grow up and, and what was your path to MIT in engineering? Sure. So I would say it was a a bit of a winding road to MIT. I consider Dallas, Texas home. But growing up, we actually lived a few different places. I was born in Texas, moved to New Jersey, back to Texas, then finished high school in Pittsburgh. And a big draw of that was my dad was in sales. And so I think this, this whole notion of on Sunday nights or Monday morning, seeing somebody pack a suitcase, go on the road for a couple of days, born and raised kind of with that as as the norm. So that was a bit of my dad's experience. And then with my mom, she was an interior designer. And so after school, I would take the bus. She actually had a store where she would sell wallpaper. She would do consultations. And I was actually in there. I was helping with invoices. I was setting up displays. I was, you know, I should have been on the payroll, but unfortunately I was not. That was going to ask. So this was one of those early apprenticeship roles, if I'm hearing you correctly. Exactly. That's one way of putting it. I, I think I was paying my way to stay in the house, but it was it was a great opportunity for me to have a bit of those creative experiences. But I, I would say across both of my parents, kind of learning work ethic really early and gaining a lot of skills that, frankly, wasn't thinking about it at the time. I didn't even know what consulting was until college. But I think it prepared and set the foundation um, for a lot of the experiences that I had from there. So that was kind of what my upbringing looked like. But I was a math and science nerd. I was in the math and science club. I did a lot of different pre-college programs in order to develop those interests. And I was about 15 or 16 years old, and I got a postcard in the mail from MITES, uh, the Minority Introduction to Engineering and Science from MIT. And I threw it away. I threw it away because I was convinced I was going to med school. I wanted to be a doctor. Why were you convinced on medical school? Was that something your parents had told you about? Or did you have any exposure to it besides maybe like high school biology? Just high school biology. And I was also someone where I was fascinated with the human body. I would read a lot of books about it. I actually did a little bit of a a summer job in high school working at a hospital. 
So I was convinced that was my path. I had a little Johns Hopkins lanyard when I was getting my permit. And so I, I never really thought about engineering, but my mom said, you know what, Britt, this is a really good opportunity for you to get exposure to something different. It's just a summer. Try it out. So you throw out the postcard. Did they send you another one? What, how no, does that it work? was sitting right on top. So she was right behind me and she opened and she's like, wait a second. You can't be closing doors before you even have an offer on the table. Like you need to apply to some of these things. You need to look into them. And I'm so glad she did that because, and I'm also, I'm frankly glad that I was open-minded enough to consider it rather than kind of staying on the path that I was on. And so pursued this experience. It was six weeks on campus, introduction to, to engineering, to science. I got exposed to concepts such as biomaterials. So that was a way of bridging the interest in medicine with the interest in science. And so had a chance to pursue that. And so that was kind of my, my journey to MIT. And I would say the part that was, was most fascinating to me, it was my first time ever where I was surrounded by 60 other Black and Latino students that were just as nerdy as me and sometimes even more nerdy. That had never been the case before. And so I think that was the first time I really came into my own and just had a, a fantastic academic experience. Yeah, and shout out to the Mites program at MIT. Uh, a lot of my friends there were Mites alums, and they roll deep when they get to campus. Exactly. Yeah, it's pretty powerful when freshman year, you know, 48 other people, and you're all kind of roommates together, and you have a great experience. You know, you don't have the the typical freshmanisms. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, double shout out to Dedrick Carter, who I think was running the program while you were in it. Dedrick is a good friend. We were on campus together back in the day. Brittany, let's talk about... Um, you, know, you do the MITES program, presumably you apply to MIT, you probably had options, but chose to go to MIT. What was that integration like? And, and were you still on the path to medical school or had you started to broaden your horizons a little bit? I was still very much on the path to medical school. I was kind of the, the annoying kid in the back where every time they talked about career planning and all of that, I asked you know questions about pre-med and what I needed to do. But the funny part is that didn't last very long. MIT, what I loved about it was the fact that there was opportunities to focus on research so early on. And so as a freshman, I did two different research experiences, both of which kind of were scratching that itch of topically what I thought was going to be really interesting. But I was not energized at all. Keep, you'll know it as course three, but I studied material science and engineering. And the way the lab is set up, they call it the fishbowl because it's all glass that you're surrounded by. And so I had certain responsibilities where I'm sitting there and it's like 8, 9, 10 p.m. I'm pipetting. I'm doing all of these different things and I'm just watching people go by. And that's when I realized, you know, hey, maybe this path that I was on with kind of a spin towards engineering, maybe that doesn't make sense. Maybe I do need to explore some other things. So one particular night, I, I was hungry. I'm walking out of the lab. I see a sign that says free food. And I'm like, okay, as a freshman, that's a pretty strong draw. <laughs> I followed the signs and there was an event going on hosted by the Sloan Undergraduate Management Association talking to juniors and seniors that had recently completed internships in banking and consulting. I did not know anything about either of those career paths. I did know I was hungry, so uh, I stayed the full time, <laughs> but listened to the presentation. And that was the first time it started to trigger for me of, okay, well, it's analytical, it's team oriented. There's a lot of variety in the types of things that you can do. You have a chance to travel. I, I kind of like to do that too. And so that was the first time that I really started to broaden my, my horizons. Right. And for anybody on the recruiting side of things that's listening, make sure you heard what Brittany said. We do a lot of fancy things. We do a lot of you know, effort putting into planning big events and things like that. And it turns out free pizza and a sign advertising free food 
uh, can sometimes be the draw that gets them in the door. That's it. That's all I needed. For my fellow recruiters out there, take note. You can be as fancy as you want, but sometimes all you need is a sign and some free pizza. So Brittany, once you leave that and you start rethinking your entire life plan a couple months into MIT, how do you end up getting connected to consulting? And I, I will disclose up front, I think I have a pretty good idea, but why don't we why don't we get into that a little bit? Because it's it's not an easy path for some people early in their MIT career. Absolutely. It was, uh, it was relatively simple. I Googled top consulting firms. I then went into our alumni database and looked up people that were working at those firms and sent cold emails. And it's, it, you know, shows how much research I did. I had no filter of what levels of people that I should look at reaching out to. I simply said, you know, hey, if you check one or two boxes of having a common background to mine, I'm going to send you an email. And so I sent these blasts out and reached out to folks across a number of different firms. And funny enough, one of those people was Keith Bevins. So it was great to use that as a way to get in contact with you. But I looked at it and, you know, we had both done uh, MIT, Nesby, been in the same dorm. And so I, I went in with no, no expectation, but hey, here's the questions. Here's where I'm coming from. And, and was very transparent about the fact that I was a, a freshman and probably a couple of years away from actually joining any of these firms. And the things that really stood out to me is, number one, you responded. Number two, when we got on the phone, all the other conversations I had with other people, I would say, were very encouraging. Oh, keep doing what you're doing. You're on the right track, all of those sorts of things. When I had my chat with you, Keith, it was very much like, hey, Brittany, if you want to be successful in consulting, here's what I have to tell you, and here's what you need to do, and here's what your game plan should be. And that level of focus and feeling like I was getting sponsorship before I had even started at the firm, that carried through to all of the conversations I had with other people at Bain as well. And so pretty quickly and pretty early on, not only did I find that I was interested in consulting, but but Bain felt like the right place for me. Yeah. And what I remember about that, aside from just getting a well, well-articulated email, it was not short. If I... Right. There was not a, definitely not a word count limit. But what I remember about that was I we had a conversation. I gave you a couple things and said, do these things and call me back like in a year or something like that. And you pretty much did exactly that. You were like, okay, here's one, two, three, four, five. What next? And at the time, we had been expanding and growing our Bell program, the Building Entrepreneurial Leaders program. And I think that was your sort of first official foray with Bain. Was that all you did that summer? No. So that summer, I also I participated in a few things. SEO, so Sponsors for Educational Opportunity, used that as a way to have an introduction to banking and consulting. And in particular, that was kind of a crash course, Excel, PowerPoint, what you need to know about finance. Did that for two weeks. I then participated in a full internship with JP Morgan through their Launching Leaders program, and I was in their natural resources group. And so that was a great way to bridge what I was learning in material science with my first introduction to finance. And then I literally finished my internship on a Friday, and then Sunday was the dinner for the introduction to the Bell program. So I was able to directly compare and contrast what it would look like to work in banking and what it would look like in, in consulting. And I would say during my summer in banking, I would ask a lot of my mentors questions. You know, I was working on an accretion dilution model, doing something with M&A. And I kept asking, well, what's it actually going to look like for these two companies to come together? And how operationally is this going to work? And and they said, you know what, Brittany, if you're asking all these questions, you might want to explore consulting. (laughs) 
Even even the bankers knew. Even the bankers was knew. I was showing a lot of signals that that might be an, a more appropriate path. And so I would say in terms of the types of things I was interested in, I felt like I would be able to check those boxes much more in consulting, but also just the vibe that I got when I came to Bain, Chicago. I walked the halls. I got a chance to, to have a lot of coffee chats with people and kind of hear about their experiences and journeys. It, it was pretty much a done deal after I finished that one week bell program. Yeah, and you met a bunch of people that I think you've also stayed in touch with, which seems to be a common theme throughout your career journey. But what are some of the people that stood out to you during that week at Bell, and, and how did you stay connected with them when that week was over? Absolutely. Well, I it worked out very well because the Bell program overlapped with the Blacks at Bain and Latinos at Bain conference that was also taking place in the Chicago office at that time. So um, over the course of my Bell week through the Bell program, I had a chance to meet the Bain Chicago office head. I had a chance to be quote unquote staffed for two days on a project. And some of the individuals that I worked with on that case are still at Bain and still people that I I stay in touch with. But I think what was most powerful was the fact that I was able to see the entire network of Black talent at Bain, not just the Chicago office, but worldwide. I was meeting people from Joburg. I was meeting people from London. And that following year, I was doing a a transfer to the University of Cambridge through MIT's Cambridge Exchange. And a couple of the folks that I met that were from Bain, London, I actually had a chance to catch up with them while I was in London a couple of months later. And so it was just great to have had that network, have had that opportunity to, to engage with those folks so early on. And so you do that, you come back to Bain the following summer for the full 10 weeks as an ACI. Was that experience what you expected based on what you had seen over the previous two years? It was. You know, Bain, we have a a habit of reaching out to people and saying, you know, let me know if you have any more questions. And typically, I have tons of things on my mind and tons of questions. And by the end of the summer, I was like, I have no one else that I need to talk to. I felt like the experience was such a great way for me to get a very real exposure to the job, you know, it wasn't just kind of a side project where I was building things that were only going to go into the appendix. I was meeting clients. I had a chance to travel to the client site. I had a chance to understand the different, what we refer to as extra tens or things that you can get involved with outside of casework. And so I felt like the transition, you know, understanding the ACI experience, but understanding really what it would look like if I were to come full time, I had a very clear view of that. So, so when the offer came in, of course, I, I told them, you know, let me sleep on it for a couple of days. Let me think about it. But there, there, was, <laughs> there was no other follow-up needed. Britt, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about joining the firm full-time. So fast forward a little bit in time, you graduate, you come back as an AC, you join the Chicago office. What is that experience like? Did you still have med school on the mind? Did you want to double down on your natural resources or material science experience? What What is it that you thought you were going to get out of the experience and how did you try and craft your journey here? Sure. So when I first joined, and if I think about what my first staffing chat or advisor chat looked like when I was joining Bain, I think I was more interested in that intersectionality of my interest in technology more broadly and business. And I would say I had an entrepreneurial spirit. So I was asking a lot of questions around, you know, how can I have certain Bain experiences that would set me up well to potentially explore VC? MIT was also creating this huge entrepreneurial community as well. And so that was something that I thought was was going to be my path. 
I also was uh, completely convinced I was only going to be in Chicago for two years and then I was going to go back to the East Coast. As you know, Keith, majority of people from MIT, they stay on the coast. They either stay in kind of the Boston, New York area or they go to California, but there is no one that's really kind of in the Midwest. So I didn't have a network. But those were a couple of the things that I was thinking about more broadly career-wise. And then I would say in the interim, thought I was going to go to business school. And I was also very interested in an international transfer. So those were kind of the, the four things that I shared on my hit list of, of things that I wanted to try and accomplish over, call it the, my, my two to four year plan as I was having conversations with staffing. Right. Now, we had talked previously about you meeting, getting to know Anita and Leslie and the work they were doing in the private equity group. How did you know that that was a good fit for you as, as you thought about the experiences you wanted to have? Right. So the very first case I had was very client heavy. And I wanted that exposure because I had no idea what that looked like. And I wanted to kind of really understand what client services meant. I had a great experience with it, but the nature of the feedback that I was getting in terms of developmental feedback was, well, Brittany, be more answer first, be more 80-20. And that's kind of Bain's way of saying, stop building 20-page decks and going into a whole bunch of Excel documents. Like, tell me what you think and have a hypothesis and have some conviction around, around what you have to say. And as I talked to others that were, call it a year or two years ahead of me, they mentioned that our private equity group was a great proving ground in order to really focus on that. And that proved to be true. Right after I finished that first experience, I joined the private equity group. And two days into my very first deal, the senior manager was going around to every person at the table and saying, so what's the answer? Would you buy this company? What's the answer? What's the and I'm like, oh my God, I'm like counting down until how long it's going to take until they get to me. I'm like, I need to have a good answer. And so that was anxiety driving, I would say the first couple of times. But a couple of weeks later, when you know, going into that 4 p.m. daily standup, that that's going to be the conversation, you prepare for that. And you're looking for different signals. And every single day you're asking yourself, is the work that I'm doing is it driving towards being able to clarify an answer or not? And so that was a real light bulb moment for me in the first um, year and a half of my Bain experience. Yeah, my experience, Brittany, has been that the clarity of purpose or the clarity of activity that comes with knowing you have a deadline where someone will look to you for a thumbs up, a thumbs down, or an answer yes, an answer no, it really focuses you on the things that really matter. And you end up not chasing all kinds of rabbits and going down rabbit holes. You, you, you sort of say, nothing there? Okay, moving on, next. Exactly, exactly. Especially when you start counting in terms of how many hours of sleep do I have to trade off chasing that rabbit or not? <laughs> right, you get really efficient working on a private equity group. And shout out to Anita. Anita and Andrew Kunkel actually uh, were on a previous episode of the podcast talking about the learning and development you get in the private equity group, sort of going a little bit deeper into the things you talked about. So for listeners that are interested uh, in a little bit more of what that's like and what the transition in and, and the support that you get in, in our private equity group is like, you might want to go back and listen to that episode. Brittany, you mentioned that you had international experience on the mind. So as an associate consultant, did you actually pursue a transfer and did you have a particular location in mind or did you just, did you just want to get the passport stamped? So I was very much uh, interested in an international experience and I would say I didn't have a strong opinion of exactly where to go. I, I looked at the list and I kind of said, when my time comes, 
I'm trying to solve for having a new geographic experience, not necessarily having a specific region in mind. And so fast forward, we get to the two-year mark. I see the list come through and there were slots available for Melbourne, Australia. I was like, wow, I've never, I'd never been to anywhere kind of in that Pacific area. I'd never been to Asia. I'd never been to Australia. And I thought it would be just a great opportunity to to experience a very different culture. That's another lesson learned with the Bain experience. When you say something and you put it out into the atmosphere, be, be prepared for things to move really fast if you're accepted. So I'm pretty sure I told HR that I was interested There was a very minor set of paperwork that I had to fill in in terms of articulating my interests and my rationale. And I want to say, Keith, it was probably something like eight weeks later, I was in Melbourne, Australia. And I timed it perfectly. It was uh, wintertime in Chicago and summertime there. So it was a great experience. I got to kind of lock away the heavy jackets for a really long time and and just had a great experience with that. What uh, What were the big takeaways from your time in Australia? Yeah, so I, um, surprising in in one way was actually how similar the Bain experience was. So I don't know, Keith, if you've covered this in other podcasts, but with our global trainings, you are learning the exact same things about how we do problem solving, what your role is on the case team, sitting alongside people from South America, Asia, Australia, all of our different offices. And I knew that to be true from my experience as a trainee. But when I got to Australia and the fact that, oh, I show up to work and I can just jump right in and add value and I didn't have to overthink all of these other aspects of my day to day, that was really powerful. So that was one of the learnings for me. I think there was a lot of cultural learnings of being in a bit of a smaller office. And so there were a lot of opportunities for me to share my experiences coming from Chicago, which I think at the time, maybe we had about 350 consultants. And I remember going to the Melbourne office. I show up on day one and I ask, you know, which floors are, is the Bain office on? And they said, what do you mean floors? It's, it's just this one floor. It's just, it's just the 55 of us. That's it. And so that was quite, quite different. And then also just getting to experience the client experiences and client relationships as well. A lot of the folks in Australia, it's not as normal to necessarily go and get your MBA. So the the typical program of come out of undergrad, get your MBA, return with sponsorship, and then progress from there. A lot of the ACs were actually coming in with prior career experiences. They were in banking, they were in law, whatever else. So the average age was skewed a bit older. And so as a result, everyone was getting a lot more client reps earlier on. But I would say that experience also caused me to challenge whether or not business school was going to be of interest for me because I didn't see as many people that had their MBA while I was in the Australia office. Once that experience is done, you come back to Chicago. And again, you and I have have stayed pretty close over the years. I know that you had an interest in tech. Did that start to develop prior to joining Bain in Australia or when you came back from Australia? Because when you came back, I think you were pretty close to the consultant promotion point or, or had just passed it and then really started to focus in on the types of things that you wanted to do. Can you talk a little bit about that journey and how you made that happen? Sure. Tech was also something that was just kind of an underlying interest. So I would follow the different MIT alumni newsletters that would come through and I you know, reading TechCrunch during my daily commute and listening to certain podcasts. It was always something that was kind of in the background, but I encouraged myself, at least for my first couple of years at Bain, be a generalist and get as much exposure as possible, especially because I was not coming in with any other business background. And 
started to get antsy, I'd say, when I came back from my transfer. I'd been at Bain for about three and a half years at that point. I started to form in my my head, like, Brittany, you're probably not going to go to business school. You're probably going to either stay at Bain or go work somewhere else. And so if tech is something that you're interested in, you need to start telling people that and you need to start figuring out how do you scratch that itch. And so I went to staffing and I said, who are the people in Bain, Chicago that tend to focus on technology? And they connected me with Will Poindexter. Will is now the America's practice lead for the enterprise technology practice area. And at the time, he was someone where I would just have recurring coffee chats with him. I would understand what types of cases he was working on, what topics he was learning about. And he was really invested of, hey, let's take a topic of the month and I'm going to go really deep on this topic with you and tell you what it means and how it works and, and educate you on it. And it took a while before we had a chance to actually work together, but it was great to just start to develop that foundation and then also to develop that mentor relationship with him. Right. And, and Will, I know, is a big fan of yours and, and invests a lot in people, but you had other people along the way. And I know uh, at one point as a consultant, you, you really scratched the itch and took advantage of an externship. So continuing to build your own path through Bain, you do the, you do the international transfer, you come back for a little while. When did you do the externship and where did you go? It was my C2 year, so second year post the the typical business school promotion timeline. And I, at that point, was interested in technology. There was a lot of conversation. If we kind of flash back to, to 2015, 2016, a lot of interest in big data, advanced analytics, innovation, disruption. All of those were the buzzwords of the day. And I wanted to explore that. And I was kind of in a couple of different minds. Did I want to work at a startup? Did I want to work at a tech native or did I want to work at a company that was more similar to our client story where it was an incumbent organization that had been very successful doing what they do for decades that were trying to figure out how to reinvent and do things differently? That was ultimately the bucket that I went into. I thought there were just some amazing challenges that exist in terms of cultural transformation and and the types of questions that need to be answered when you're in that type of environment. So for eight months, I left Bain. I pursued an externship at Allstate as they were standing up an innovation hub. And as you can also imagine, Keith, at that time, it was autonomous vehicles. That was a big topic. And so if you are someone that focuses on auto insurance, (laughs) it leads to a lot of questions around what is my industry going to look like in 10, 20 years when there's a lot of autonomous vehicles on the road? And so when I started my externship, it was day one of them opening their innovation hub. And it was a great experience and opportunity for me to actually work with a Bain alum. And so I was working with Jason Park. He was a former Bain Chicago senior manager. And it was a great experience because he knew what I was capable of and the experiences I had had at Bain. But he also knew that with the externship, I was trying to solve for learning net new experiences. And so over the course of my eight months, I was learning things like how to be a product owner, product manager, what it meant to to focus on data and actually supervise and hire a team of data scientists. So I got just a, a phenomenal experience with that and really enjoyed that externship. So Brittany, as we start to to finish up the journey of your career path through Bain, I just want to highlight something that you just talked about there. So you came back from Australia, you got promoted, you were doing well at Bain. At that time, our business was doing great. You were openly talking with people at Bain about trying to find either a job outside of Bain or taking some time and leaving Bain. Absolutely. And it's it's funny because when I talk to other friends and family, this whole idea of how open and transparent you can be about 
what you're trying to accomplish, what your plans are, even if they involve plans outside of the company that you're currently at, that does not does not resonate at all with a lot of other people. But my entire Bain experience, and, and you kind of opened this entire podcast by talking about this whole concept of building your own Bain, at any given point, I felt very comfortable sharing, here's where I'm at, here's what I'd like to accomplish, here's what success looks like for me, is there an opportunity to make that happen? And something I, I would share for, for others kind of at Bain or, or people that are earlier in their career is no one's going to care more about your career progression and development more than you. So you have to be the first person to kind of really invest in thinking about what that story is going to be, but also being patient. There were certain things that I said I was interested in, you know, this externship, for example, I planted that seed, but it probably took several months and a couple of cases before staffing was able to figure out how to make that happen because I was doing it at a non-traditional time and for a non-traditional duration of time. And But ultimately it landed, it made sense. And I would say for me, I was able to check a lot of career boxes in terms of what I needed to explore and learn, but also that experience was very valuable for Bain when I returned. I think I was a much more empathetic consultant because I'd actually worked at a client. And a lot of the things that we recommend where sometimes it feels like, why aren't they just taking this recommendation? You know, it's super straightforward. We have the answer. Just go ahead and do it. Okay, when you're in the trenches with someone and you understand all the dynamics of uh, the cultural challenges... You, you have a different outlook on what it actually takes to, to drive change. And Brittany, now as a partner at Bain, where are you spending the majority of your time? What's your practice area? What's your focus? Yes. So my formal practice area is the enterprise technology practice. And within that, I've done a range of different types of cases. But where I'd say I'd like to spend majority of my time is at the intersection of technology and digital strategy. A lot of times we are in conversations and the chief technology officer, the CIO, the CEO, and the CFO really struggle to see eye to eye. There's this big ambition, it's super exciting, but it's really, really challenging to think about what the roadmap is going to require in order to make that uh, happen. And so being in the room, helping to understand that, helping to clarify it, and giving a tangible plan to that executive team so that they can make the right decisions and be able to progress their strategy that's where I'd really like to to focus my time going forward. And, and that's where I've kind of focused for the past, I would call it three or four years. Brittany, 2020 was a really interesting year for the country and for a lot of companies in the private sector as they thought about racial equity and social justice. And Bain was definitely a part of that and going through the same sort of introspective period. One of the things that came out of that, in addition to all of the other efforts that we've launched inside Bain and outside of Bain, is the Black Leaders Forum. And you've been a really big part of that. So I want to spend uh, the next little bit talking about that and, and your role in it and what it is. So for those who haven't heard of the Black Leaders Forum, can you describe what it is and what it's trying to do? Black Leaders Forum is a network of Black executives. And, and by executives, we're talking about individuals in corporate America, VP levels or higher within their organizations that are coming together to have conversations about thriving and driving impact. And Brittany, who are these executives? Are they is it a small group? Is it a group of Bain alums? Who's in the Black Leaders Forum today? It's a bit of all of the above. I would say today we have about 200 executives that are a part of what we refer to as our BLF family. And it started off by trying to identify clients 
that would fit those uh, criteria, but then also friends of Bain. Those are colleagues, those are alum, but most importantly, people that we thought would be very invested in the types of conversations that we were trying to structure and bring together. Right. And when did the Black Leaders Forum launch formally? Formally in uh, fall of 2020. So uh, Keith, as you mentioned, 2020 was, it was a challenging time for so many different reasons. We're dealing with a pandemic. There's so much racial, racial unrest. And for me personally, I felt like I was just exhausted at the time. There were so many different draws on my time. As a leader, I was being asked to plug in mentor junior folks, be involved in all of these different change programs and change initiatives. And while I knew it was good work that needed to be done, it didn't feel like it was self-directed in terms of what I felt like I wanted to contribute my time to in order to, to drive change. And so I think we were sitting in the same meeting, Bain was going over our different pillars of our DEI transformation agenda. And one of the things that I felt like we could be doing a bit more of was investing in Black clients and Black talent within our sphere. And so I proposed this idea, you know, hey, 2020 has been crazy. I imagine there's a lot of other folks that feel the same way I feel. Can we just get them together and have a conversation? Back to that other theme of if you say something, be prepared to do the work. (laughs) Yourself and Julie Kaufman, who's now our chief diversity officer, said, okay, well, why don't we pencil in October 2020 and and let's get something on the books. I got to put some work in in order to make that happen. But that was that was the spirit and the energy of and, and the impetus of starting Black Leaders Forum initially. Being in that meeting and talking about all the things we were trying to do, it was just a really exhausting time. I know a lot of people checked in on me to see how I was doing, you know, after Ahmaud Arbery or George Floyd and the protests and even just responding to people was exhausting. And so to sit in a meeting talking about what we wanted to do while we were already exhausted looking at taking on more work, um, it wasn't that, at least personally, it wasn't that I didn't care. It was that I was just drained. And so I think when you brought up the idea of just, I bet there's a lot of other people like us at different companies that are drained and feeling like they're alone on the island. What if we got that group together? (laughs) And the light it was one of those light bulb moments for me. I was like, that's a really cool idea. Absolutely. And we had no idea what it was going to turn into. This was contrary to a typical Bain case where you think about your five-year vision and strategy and you do a whole bunch of market research. It was very much grassroots. Let's make this happen because the time is now and and there's a lot of lot of interest in this. And so that we were really excited to to be able to kind of get it kickstarted as fast as we did. And sometimes, you know, things that don't seem like uh, they're great have unexpected benefits. I do think that being in the pandemic and and with everything being on lockdown and doing everything by Zoom, it was actually a little bit easier to assemble the group than it might have been flying everybody to Chicago in October. And that's a great point, Keith, because as I started reaching out to people in my network to kind of test early interest in, in this, they specifically noted that moving to virtual work was more isolating. You didn't have those opportunities to walk the halls and casually run into, frankly, other Black folks that are at your company. And I know for me and my main experience, uh, Keith and I, we share an office in the, the Chicago office. There's oftentimes where you float into the kitchen and you have a chance to just kind of socially catch up with people and talk about things outside of your day to day. And that's super energizing. But in Zoom, unless those individuals are on your team, you have to be very intentional about scheduling a meeting with them or some other forum in order to stay connected. So again, when we were looking at October 2020, when everyone was on lockdown and everybody was kind of stuck in the house, 
there was no opportunity to have conversations amongst peers and, and really process all of what was happening. What stood out to me about that very first session was the realization that, like me, a lot of other senior Black executives also hadn't seen a lot of people like them, uh, either at their companies or at their at the organizations they work with, their other stakeholders. So, you know, I know I thought through my mental Rolodex of, you know, how many Black clients have I worked with? Well, I should invite all three of them, right? And I'm, I'm 24 years into my career and I can still count all of them along the on way hand. on one hand. And, and it was interesting because at that first meeting, I feel like um, a lot of the attendees felt that, that same energy on the call. It was like they were just great to meet each other and talk about the journey. And it was across industries. It was across, you know, not as much across seniority. They tended to be very senior, but it was across industries, across functions. What were the topics that that we discussed at that first meeting and, and subsequent meetings? Because I think people might be curious. Okay, so you get this group together. What do you all do? Absolutely. So the theme of that first event was how do we move from surviving to thriving as Black executives? So that was our headline statement. It was really exciting for me to, after the event, look at the nature of dialogues that came up in each of the different breakout groups. And I would say there were two macro themes. For people that were a bit more seasoned and, and senior in their careers, the big conversation that they were having was, okay, we kind of have our seat at the table, but how are we going to pound the table for change? What are we going to do to capture the energy in this moment to share those ideas that maybe were in the back of our heads that we never really spoke up about? And how are we going to really challenge the status quo? How are we really going to call leadership out on, on different biases or structural barriers that have prevented progress in the past? And so there was a lot of dialogue that was happening for folks that, let's say, are already on the C-suite or, or potentially kind of five, 10 years away from retirement that are saying, this is what we need to accomplish. So that was one track of conversation. There was a second where, let's say people that recently moved from the, the middle management layer to kind of the early executive rank. And for them, there was still a lot of questions about, it, it feels like there's a bit of a glass ceiling. How do I actually get from VP to SVP or SVP to EVP? What does that look like? How do I get that board opportunity? It seems very much a black box. When I look at other black leaders that are potentially at the level above me within my company, it seems like a lot of them were actually hired or sourced externally. And so it's kind of the same pool of people that are kind of shifting co companies and, and floating around, but I'm not seeing as much of that promotion path within my firm. What does that mean? What should I be doing? What conversations do I need to have? And so that was a bit more of a challenging conversation. And I would say the goal of this session, it was not to come up with any answers by any means, but for people to feel like they had the space to just kind of share how they were feeling, to get some inspiration, to share different ideas. And with that as the overall objective, I'd say we checked the box. And, and to your point, Keith, the feedback was extremely positive coming out of that first event. Yeah, I remember that first event, one of my takeaways was that there was a period in history where we would celebrate being in the room, maybe even at the table. And the takeaway for me was that's actually not, it's no, no good to celebrate being at the table if you're not actually using your voice to drive change while you're at that table. And hearing some of the seasoned folks you talk about share their experience of sort of finding their voice. And, and that was actually the, 
the tipping point to when I think they went from surviving at the table to actually thriving at the table. You know, so they weren't biting their tongue. They weren't sort of sending follow-up notes on what they thought. They were actually speaking up and using their voice in the room while the decisions were being made. And that was sort of, again, it was reaffirming. I wouldn't necessarily say eye-opening, but it was reaffirming to see that there's a path for people to do that. Brittany, what else have you heard from the feedback perspective from the people that have participated? We've now done several of these with a bunch more planned. What are people saying about them? And for people listening, maybe some of the cynics would say, yeah, but this is just a chance for Bain to share some of Bain's work and hopefully sell some more, sell some more business. Is that what right. we're doing here? <laughs> Not at all. And I'll actually start with that second piece. We were very intentional when we initially designed this, that this is not a Bain commercial. This is not an opportunity for us to promote our own practice areas or things of that nature. And oftentimes the design of these sessions, we're actually bringing in, whether it's outside in speakers or we are having Black Leaders Forum attendees share their experiences and be the primary voices that are shaping the dialogues that we have within each of the conversations. So that is very intentional. And I would also even say we talked about the size of the group. We are not trying to make this the most massive Black executive forum and network that exists out there, but being very intentional about bringing groups of people together that are going to value and contribute to the nature of the conversations that we have. In terms of feedback, something else that we learned along the way is there are a lot of programs that exist out there that I would call our kind of entry-level or pre-professional focuses on Black talent and bringing people together. I know, Keith, you and I, we both participated in Nesby. I participated in MLT. There's a lot of things that I, I did early on that really got me a jump start in my career. But when you start looking at the executive ranks, I think there's probably a view of, well, at that point, you've kind of arrived. And there's so much nuance in what it takes to be successful at that level. You know, kind of figure it out with your own network of mentors and sponsors. And there aren't really any cross-industry or cross-functional conversations that happen at the Black executive level, bringing this group together. And so that was a bit of some surprising feedback that we heard is the fact that that was not something that existed, but was something that was valued and uh, a key reason why a lot of attendees choose to come back to Black Leaders Forum events. Yeah, it's been really interesting. I've I've now done a breakout group in all of the events that we've had to date, and the similarity of experience across the group is is surprising given the breadth of industries and functional roles represented in any one of those breakout groups. And I think that's a little bit of where the magic happens. It's also fun uh, to realize how small the world is. I remember, Keith, the very first event in the chat, you saw people that were reconnecting. It's like, oh, I met you at so-and-so's wedding 15 years ago and <laughs> college yeah, roommates was... and everything. <laughs> It's really wild um, how small the network is. And despite having met each other, you know, years earlier, people just forget like, oh, I should probably reach out to that person in the Black Leaders Forum or the BLF family is sort of rekindling those old relationships. They're sort of becoming mini family reunions. Brittany, as we start to wrap, I want to talk about the future of Black Leaders Forum. You know, I know the answer to this, but I think some people might be thinking, okay, but when, when the anxiety and the adrenaline that came with 2020 starts to fade, you know, we'll just go back to the way things were in 2019. You know, what does the future look like for Black Leaders Forum and where where are you trying to take the group as as the de facto leader of the effort inside Bain? Yeah, uh, the answer is I, I have some ideas, but the intention of how we want to design this forum is making sure that we are listening to the attendees at Black Forum, Black Leaders Forum, to really understand 
what's top of mind for them and what conversations are going to be most valued for them. So for example, we finished that first event and I would say at the time, it was a lot of conversation around, let's talk about how we were feeling in this moment at this time about the events of the world. And then we did a survey. Do we wanna have more of those types of conversations or are there other things that are on your minds? And the next topic that come up came up was, hey, this whole board of director thing, what should that look like? What should I be thinking about? And so that was a pretty strong pivot from the nature of the first conversation. But we brought together Bain's executive network to talk about what it takes to be ready for a board and to be a high impact board member. And similarly, we finished that event and then we asked the group, OK, now what's top of mind? So I would say we're taking a bit more of an agile approach of making sure that we are at any given time having an event and a conversation that is going to make sure that people feel like, Individually, they're getting the tools to thrive or they are figuring out and being able to experience here how to have a better impact within their corporations and within their personal lives. So I'm really excited about this journey of what are the topics going to continue to be, how we will continue to evolve. And then personally, I'm excited about the role that I can play as a partner at Bain of connecting the dots with all of the resources that we have across industry in order to make sure that we are very thoughtful and intentional about this cohort of Black leaders getting them the support that they need with the weight of Bain behind them to make sure that they're able to to progress in their journeys as well. Awesome. Brittany, well, I want to thank you for being on the podcast today and sharing uh, a little bit about your journey and the great work that you're doing with Black Leaders Forum. I know you're probably going on LOA pretty soon, so I appreciate you getting us on the schedule before you go out to meet baby Matthews when she arrives in the next couple of weeks. But thanks for being on today. Thanks, Keith. Thanks everyone for tuning in to Beyond the Bio. If you'd like to share a review or give us input on what you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd really like to hear from you. Please email our inbox at beyondthebio at bain.com. We'll see you soon with some new episodes and thanks for listening.